I'm Michael Goldfarb in for Dick Gordon. This is The Connection. Here are some things we know about author David Foster Wallace. He is from the Midwest, but currently lives in Southern California. He knows more about mathematics than most of us. And tennis he's a tennis player of some quality. And for better or worse, for richer or poorer, whether he wants to be or not, he has been handed the mantle of writer of his generation, the person among his peers most likely to write the great American novel. His last book of fiction was Infinite Jest, a thousand-page excursion into 12-step programs, terrorism, and other stuff, and it was published in 1997. His latest work is a collection of stories, some short, others not so short, called Oblivion. The stories show an interest in the work world of media and also the panicked world of ordinary life, where substitute teachers go barking mad and babies suffer accidents that boggle their parents' minds. We're talking about the work and worldview of David Foster Wallace in this hour. Connection listeners, what do you think of his writing? Do you like it? And be completely honest, do you understand all of it? And where do you place him in the world of contemporary American fiction? 1-800-423-8255 is the number to call to join in the conversation. That's 1-800-423-TALK. And with me in the studio is David Foster Wallace. Hi. Hello. It's nice to meet you, <laughs> because I, I I have been reading you in, in a variety of different places for a while now, and it's nice to have you face-to-face with me. Um, first of all, just out of curiosity, when did you move to Southern California? I moved there in the summer of 2002. I got a really good teaching job that was just kind of unturned-downable. Mm-hmm. And, and you're living in L.A.? or I live between Los Angeles and San Bernardino. Right. And is it a place that's kind of begun to work on your imagination in a different way than being in downstate. I think um, I, I, I think for the most part I'm just trying to adjust. It's very um, it's both very beautiful weather-wise and very very urban. And the place I live in is essentially one great big strip mall. <laughs> just the perfect environment. It, it, a strip mall, it, presumably, where every single item that's visible to the na- naked eye has already been pre-tested and pre-plotted by marketing men. I smell a segue here. Yes. Thank you, David. You're, you're very helpful. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, the thing that, that, that struck me most in, in the book is that how interested you are in the world of work that nobody else is interested in. Uh, just in the last hour, we were talking about um, gender inequality in the workplace, uh, talking about Walmart, but your interest in, in the way that media... The, the work of, of media, of marketing, goes on. It, it's something that comes across in the book. And where did that come from? You know, <clears throat> I don't know. I know that, I know that I'm now 42 and, and grew up in, in watching a lot of television and being part of a heavily mediated culture. I think, um, I think one of the things that interests me is, is the fact that though, though it does sort of compose our generation's reality, we don't often think of it as a human product and the product of human choices and human thought and human work. And, I, you know, I think you're right. I think a lot of people aren't aren't interested in the behind-the-scenes he- stuff about media as much as I am, um, although on the other hand, I don't have any particular experience of it, and a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff I do is made up. Yeah, well, it's called fiction. There we go. Um, well, the, the, the interesting, at the start... The, the, the first story in this collection, Oblivion, is set in, in a focus group. And it, it's 
it's imagined, obviously. Why don't you tell us a bit about the story and maybe read us a bit? Okay, let's see. Yeah, this is a long one called Mr. Squishy um, that originally I'd done um, pseudonymously as part of a cycle, and the rest of the cycle kind of died. Um, it is. It, it started out to be a kind of 12 angry man jury story, um, but set in a focus group. And then I got more and more interested in the facilitator, um, the statistician who's kind of in charge of the focus group. The focus group is together testing a, um, a made-up snack cake called Felonies um, that, that is due to be distributed soon. And let's see, there's a lot of this sort of marketing and focus group nomenclature in the story. If the story's got a movement, I guess it's that it starts out really heavily on kind of the technical stuff about how focus group testing and marketing works, and as it as it goes on, gets more and more interested in the facilitator, sort of as a as a traditional third person. Yeah, Shlemiel. I, Shlemiel. I, I I like the way you, you in, in the story it says the dark and exceptionally dense and moist looking snack cakes. This is on a table in a, in a focus group room. Inside the packaging were felonies, and it and it's it's felonies and, and the little copyright signs after that, a risky and multivalent trade name meant both to connote and to parody the modern health-conscious consumer's sense of vice, indulgence, transgression. That is exactly the way they talk about these things, people who are, you know, bringing new products to market with, with all of the, the energy and intensity and, and sense of profundity that people write philosophy, as if they're making some great discovery about how we know what we know. It's 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 really quite remarkable that that um, I mean I I mean I went to school with people who are now making huge salaries as kind of you know scholars of demography in New York and for advertising agencies and yeah there are very smart well educated people who are putting in full time hard work on figuring out stuff that that presents to us as as vapid or ephemeral. Read, read a bit from the story. Set it up first. Though. Oh boy. Um, I think this is uh, I, I think this is a part of the story where um, we're we're moving we're moving from the mechanics of the focus group more kind of into the personal bio and woes of the facilitator whose name is Terry Schmidt um, and let's see there's a certain amount of nomenclature in here Team Delta Y is the focus group firm that's being used by the advertising agency of uh, of RSB, which is Reesmeyer Shannon Belt, which is a made-up name, and TFG stands for Targeted Focus Group. Uh, so, okay, here's the part she marked. At various intervals throughout the pre-GERDS, sorry, GERDS is Group Response Data Summary, which is the group form that, that this focus group fills out. Starting again, at various intervals throughout the pre-GERDS presentation, the limbic portions of Schmidt's brain pursued this line of thinking. While, in fact, the whole other part of his mind surveyed these memories and fantasies and was simultaneously fascinated and repelled at the way in which all these thoughts and feelings could be entertained in total subjective private, while Schmidt ran the focus group through its brief and supposedly full-access description of Mr. Squishy's place in the soft confection industry and some of the travails of developing and marketing what these men were experiencing as felonies, referring offhandedly to nascent plans for bite-sized misdemeanors if the original product established a foothold. At least half the room's men listening with what's called half an ear while pursuing their own private lines of thought. And Schmidt had a quick vision of, of them all in the conference room as like icebergs and or ice flows, only the sharp caps showing, unknown and unknowable to one another, 
and he imagined that it was probably only in marriage, and a good marriage, not the decorous dance of loneliness he'd watched his mother and father do for seventeen years, but true conjugal intimacy, that partners allowed each other to see below the iceberg's cap's public mask and consented to be truly known, maybe even to the extent of not only letting the partner see the repulsive nest of moles under their left arm, or the way after any sort of cold or viral infection, the toenails on both feet turned a weird deep yellow for several weeks, <clears throat> but even perhaps every once in a while sobbing in each other's arms late at night and pouring out the most ghastly private fears and thoughts of failure and impotence and terrible and thoroughgoing smallness within a grinding professional machine you can't believe you once had the temerity to think you could help change or make a difference or ever be more than a tiny faceless cog in. The shame of being so hungry to make some sort of real impact on an industry that you'd fantasized over and over about finally deciding that making a dark difference with a hypo and eight cc's of castor bean distillate was better, was somehow more true to your own intercentrality and importance than being nothing but a faceless cog and doing a job that untold thousands of other bright young men and women could do at least as well as you, or rather now even better than you, because at least the younger among them still believed deep inside that they were made for something larger and more central and relevant than shepherding preoccupied men through an abstracted sham caucus, and yet at the same time still believed that they could, that is, the bright young men could, begin to manifest their larger potential for impact and effectiveness by being the very best darn targeted focus group facilitator that Team Delta Y and Reesmeyer Shannon Belt had ever seen, better than the nested test data they'd seen so far had shown might even be possible, establishing via manifest candor and integrity and a smooth and formal rhetoric that let their own very special qualities manifest themselves and shine forth such a level of connection and intimacy with a focus group that the TFG's men or women felt within the special high-voltage field of the relationship the extraordinary facilitator created, an interest in and enthusiasm for the product and for RSB's desire to bring the product out into the U.S. market in the very most effective way that matched or even exceeded the agency's own. Now, there's a world in that, and it's a single sentence. Some of the reasons why she, our senior producer, Mark that off for reading. A first quick question. That is one single sentence that you've just read. Now, you did that on purpose, or do you just, you just, the words just came out and you just said, well, we'll just keep going to the end? Well, it looks a, a little more diuretic reading it out loud than it probably did on the page. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think a simple deal is that it, is that this is a weird story because it sort of switches in and out of a, of a more omniscient third person narrator into sort of the consciousness of this Terry Schmidt. And, the the closer stuff has the closer stuff is to Terry Schmidt. I think the more run on it gets because his thoughts sort of tumble. Um, uh, it's um, the whole story isn't like this, but yeah, there are some long sentences. But, no, I mean, um, no, it's a question of, of the style of the story. In other words, when we come to it as readers, you you, you keep going through it and you, and, and you you wonder after a while because we're used to, to sentences of a certain length or punctuated in a certain way. What, no, this is all part of the process, the interaction between you know, the page and the reader. But the other thing about this story, and, and I come back to the, the theme of work, is it is something that may, maybe I, I, I'm overgeneralizing here, but most American writers of fiction just avoid it. And here's a con here, here we are, a society notorious throughout the world for living to work as opposed to working to live, working to earn enough money to enjoy life. Um, and yet 
it, it isn't something that, that hooks people in. And I think uh, my own theory is that it's partially because people don't want to think about what goes on in marketing seminars. Why do you suppose they don't? I don't know. I'm asking you. I mean, I think that it, it to, to me it's a frightening thing. I mean, I, I, I don't like to read books about the suburbs because I don't like the suburbs. And I, I personally don't necessarily, I mean, I'm curious about it. As a journalist, I'm curious about it. But I'm less, I don't know. I mean, I just think that a lot of writers don't want to deal with the world of work possibly because they haven't experienced it firsthand, possibly because it's just too terrifying to contemplate. Hmm. Um, I mean, I prefer the terrifying explanation because it's sexier than that people find it boring or, you know, they work all day, and then the last thing last thing they want to do when they come home and put their feet up is hear about somebody else's work. Probably, and th- this, this, is a, this is probably very crude, but when you were talking about most writing avoiding the world of work, it would seem to me that, that a fair amount of commercial fiction has uh, emphasizes people's work, but it's always kind of sexy, dangerous, you know, police or FBI or that kind of work. Um, I, I, and, pro- and literary fiction maybe emphasizes more domestic life and the interior life and stuff. It's not clear to me that the two are all that distinguishable. I hear the music. I'm probably supposed to trail off here in a meaningful way. You, you're so well educated. In, in the, <laughs> media in the, savvy. Uh, media, media savvy. That's what it said in all the reviews. We're talking with David Foster Wallace, who is uh, an author. His new collection of stories is called Oblivion. Connection listeners, you know his work. You have a question for him. Give a call. 800-423-8255. 800-423-TALK. You're listening to The Connection from NPR. I'm Michael Goldfarb. This is The Connection. Uh, David Foster Wallace is with me in the studio, and we're talking about his new collection of stories, Oblivion, just out. We're also talking about ideas because that's what his stories do. They make you think. Do you have any questions for him? Do you know his work? One of the most interesting and original minds writing fiction at the moment in America, 800-423-8255. 800-423-TALK is the number to call to join in the conversation. Uh, we went out talking about work. Um, it's a place in American fiction. Um, the reality that is, we, when you're not writing a, a fiction, David, I mean, do you think much about how real things are that are coming into your world? Do you, do you try and play games in your own head to get to some kind of pure form of, of the idea of a thing? Or do you, you know, shedding all of the, um, you, you know what I'm getting at here, Shed, shedding all of the conditioning that's come at you, you're 42, from watching television, from anything else that's gone on, to some kind of pure, almost mathematical notion of what is real? Do, do I drift along as a Platonist? I I don't think I I don't think I'm particularly. Um, uh, let's see. I I don't know that I regard media or marketing or or the degree of saturation that you and I and all of us have with this stuff as necessarily evil, um, or or something that needs to be. I mean, one of the hallmarks of postmodernism is it's not at all clear anymore that there's some kind of Platonic truth that rests behind people's interpretations of the truth and particularly paid people's enforced interpretations of the truth. 
I, I think one of the things that interests me, though, is just how little we think about the fact that so much of of what we voluntarily turn on and see and hear and listen to are actually human products designed by human people. Um, I don't, I'm not, a, I'm not a particular Luddite. I'm not a particular, um, I, I'm not particularly opposed to media. I, I just think it's weird that we don't often talk or think about um, sort of the, the agenda behind a lot of this stuff. I mean, I've got a whole little story about this if you want to hear, but it's going to take like two minutes to tell. Well, you know something? We have we have the best part of an hour yet, so tell it. <laughs> Here, I, I was thinking about this because we had some kind of public argument about this in San Francisco. I'm, I was in grad school studying writing in the mid-'80s, and there were some of us who used pop elements in some of our stories, brand names, celebrities. And our professors who were, you know, 20 to 30 years older than us strongly, strongly opposed this. Um, their belief was that uh, literary fiction, like most serious art, was supposed to be timeless, and pop elements were vapid and trivial, right? And they made they made they that that literary short stories were supposed to be part of high culture, which was really kind of the antidote for low culture. And, and the two, this we we had a very interesting intergen- intergenerational argument about this in school because because the kids my age, I was in my early twenties at the time, we just we just didn't get it. Um, media and and marketing and corporate and celebrity stuff were part of our reality every bit as much as, you know, cars and highways and skies were part of our professor's reality. Um, but, but as I've grown older, I've realized I think that there is a big difference is that um, – you know the romantics, skies and babbling brooks and nature and all that stuff. Those those aren't human products, and much of the media world that I and we live in is a human product, made by human beings with agendas and fears and desires. And that there's an odd resistance to thinking, in any but the most kind of reductive. These are evil people trying to manipulate us. Terms of what the hu- the human reality of 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 making all this stuff is like. I don't know if that makes any sense. It, it it does. The thing is that you talk. You were talking about the generational difference, and uh, but you're you're growing now to, to an understanding at least of what, where your professors were coming from. I also wonder if it's also an educational difference that that if you get at the elementary and secondary level, even before you get to college, a certain kind of high culture. Um, canonical education, that it, it allows you to be more skeptical about the pop thing earlier on and that you can make a distinction. I, I, I think that's I think that's probably true, and it, probably one reason why allowing corporations to subsidize educational materials or to um, move their advertising into high school cafeterias is a bit scary because those are those are educating children in a very specific way that's tailored to the interests of the corporation. Um, you know, on yeah, probably. On the other hand, I don't know that it takes a great deal of special liberal arts education to be skeptical of the media. If by skeptical you mean realizing that this isn't reality, but this is in fact a, a certain version put out by human beings who have an interest, I think what it what it depends on is a willingness to pay a certain kind of attention. And I think it's probably a certain kind of attention that people younger than me, people who are now in their twenties and thirties, are are actually more accustomed to doing, and, and I've had younger readers who don't quite understand what the big deal is, why I make such a big deal of this. Um, I think it's harder for those of us who are older to do it. Um, attention must be paid. Now, 
because you, you you come from the Midwest, you stayed in the Midwest even after you, you became a celebrity. You want to talk about how with, that happened? With, you know? with quotation marks with, around. I, I I try to do that vocally since we're not looking at a page. But you know, do you regard this view, you know, as a Midwestern view? Sometimes it, it the media culture has homogenized America. That's also a cliche, but. You know, is, is this the view of someone who grew up in the Midwest as opposed to someone who grew up in Manhattan? Well, I think it's certainly the view of somebody um, who both read and watched a lot of TV and is very used to being on his side of the screen. I mean, um, the sort of celebrity that I'm writing about and thinking about has a great deal more cultural energy and dollars attached to it than the kind of celebrity of being, you know, a, a semi-well-known literary fiction writer. I, I don't know what the numbers are for how many Americans are interested in literary fiction, but well, it's not high. It isn't high. And in fact, um, earlier this week we did an hour on the uh, the marketing fact that only 44% of men read fiction. Yeah. And and that, to me, was kind of astonishing because I figured everybody was reading at least detective novels. But apparently men aren't reading fiction at all. And, you know, it... it in the world of public radio, you assume that you're operating at the high end and the, 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 of people who are reading, and so we can have this kind of conversation. But in the rest of America, one isn't sure. When, when you travel around, you know, the country on, on a tour like this, I mean, what impressions do you have about people reading, about standards of conversation? Oh, boy. Well, I mean, you know, in a literary fiction reading, you're going to get about as many people as the venue can hold, and it, it doesn't seem like a very good reflection of the culture of the culture as a whole. I don't, I mean, I don't tour all that much. I don't talk directly to all that many readers. My sense is that there are still, um, in, in, in terms of the audience that I'm interested in, there are still plenty of of smart, sophisticated readers who are willing to put in kind of a little extra work, um, but I but I also think that that it's understandable, particularly you know maybe for men who typically have to sit all day and do kind of boring jobs that that went that reading requires solitude um, and extended periods of a kind of unusual sort of attention. Um, and most of the people, most of my friends aren't writers or aren't all that educated. And what they want when they get out of work is they want stimulation. They want entertainment, um, which TV and, and movies and the Internet is far better suited for than, you know, literary arts. We're talking with David Foster Wallace, listeners, writers, about his new collection, Oblivion. We're talking about reading in America. Are you reading these days? How much are you reading? Are you reading David Foster Wallace? 800-423-8255, 800-423-TALK. Diana is calling from Raleigh, North Carolina. Hello. What a shot of adrenaline I got as the radio echoed down my hallway about the topic you're having today. I am so psyched that for the next three months, my thirst is going to be quenched for intellectual topic. And my question that I want to propose is, without this writer's informative, intellectual, high-culture writing. Why is it that we find it so hard for the masses to be exposed to this? It's been so long for me. It's been so long for you down there in Raleigh to hear a conversation like this? Well, I'm outside of Raleigh. Oh, I'm an avid NPR listener, but something to read. Okay, let let me put that question, Diana, to David Foster Wallace. Well, I'm not totally sure what your question means. I mean, there's... There's hundreds of good literary 
fiction and poetry volumes that get published every year, it's true that they don't get marketed and advertised as heavily as commercial stuff for the simple reason that, that it doesn't make as much money. There aren't as many people who are interested in it. Um, but, but, but the sense I get is that people who are interested and are willing to dig around on the Internet or to go to bookstores and look have never found there to be any shortage of, of quality literary stuff of all different sorts. Am I answering your question? or? Well, I agree with exactly what he said. What I guess it is is the varied topics that you write about. Uh, I didn't quite make myself clear, but the varied topics that you write about, it's so exciting because it just it, it hits, hits, hits on so many different things. And I'm not exposed to your writing, and I'm very excited about uh, going to my independent bookstore and looking you up. Or a library. Way, I've got an English degree, and I'm working as a substitute teacher right now while I'm working on uh, getting my certification. So my curiosity is very high about substitute teachers gone mad. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's a very, very interesting story. I look forward to, uh, to reading it. The book is Oblivion. Thank you, Diana. Uh, 800-423-8255, 800-423-TALK. Amy is calling from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Hello. Hello, Amy. Hi, I have a question for David Foster Wallace. Um, I read Infinite Jest. I put in the effort, as it were. Um, and uh, what you've been saying in some of this uh, conversation today made me think about a question I've been having about the idea of... Um, Let's see, uh, material that's put out by humans, um, you know, uh, but with having an alternative interest, or you're talking about corporate output and being influenced by products and so forth, and uh -huh. the kind of um, just media-saturated ex existence. And what was interesting to me, I mean, what I would have wanted to ask you about is the very last sentence of that book. Uh-huh. Um, it struck me that it took, like, the entire book to get to that very last moment. It was like a last gasp, like, um, it was actually kind of a moment of redemption. I was really shocked by it. You're talking about, you're talking about the last sentence of the, of of the, the main infinite, text? Of, yeah, of infinite jest, not the last sentence of the footnote. Right. Um, uh, I, I like it as a last sentence, so obviously I'm going to agree with you. Um, do, do, Amy, do you, you don't have it memorized, do you? But it, what, what is it? Is I don't have it in front of me. Okay. It's um, a character that one of the myriad characters you've been following. And I was actually feeling resentful towards the end because I realized hmm. there was no way you were going to be um, tying up all the stories you'd begun. And I was, uh, I couldn't believe I'd gone that far and wasn't going to get, you know, a neat bow on everything. Yeah, I got hate mail about that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I forgave you, though, at the end because I... I got it. It was just clear that that wasn't what you wanted, and it was all fine, you know. But it was so um, violent and um, surreal for so much of the time, and just so much suffering. And the very last sentence, I was sh literally shocked by it because it brought it to sort of. It's going to sound a little corny, but a truly human moment. It like it took a ten-pound book to get that one sentence. <laughs> it, it takes a ten-pound book to, to to create a. Never mind. Um, Amy, I want to thank you for your call. You're listening to the Connection from NPR. Uh, but David, David, um, Amy was talking about the experience of getting through the book. She's a ten-pound book. It's a thousand pages. Um, as a writer, do you like getting the, 
that kind of very specific kind of feedback from readers? Well, sh- well, sure. I mean, th- that book, um, there's a certain amount of stuff that I do that plays a little game where it's hard, but I'm trying to make it seductive or natural. Like, like you know, a two-page sentence, if I do it right, um, yes, it's a long sentence, but you can track it grammatically and syntactically. Um, I get worried when people draw attention to it because I feel like if, if, if they're able to notice it, I'm not doing the job entirely well. Mm-hmm. I don't know that that entire... That, that all of infinite jest is a, is a support structure for the last sentence, but I too like the last sentence and I, I didn't want I didn't want to wrap various plots up neatly um, within the frame of the book. I think largely because a lot of commercial entertainments that I grew up with kind of use that and it's not entirely real. It's a kind of falsely satisfying way to wrap up various things that happen. Um, so and now I'm just maundering on. No, no, no. Because the, the question to ask is: Is, is there are, so you're consciously aware that there's an element in your work that is in response to the, the neatly wrapped up two-hour, three-act structure of of a Hollywood movie, or you know, even six episodes of, of The Sopranos? That, as as an artist, what you're trying to do is avoid that. Well, I've got I've got that wrapped up as a nice soundbite answer because I've gotten asked a whole whole lot why, after making the reader kind of climb this big hill, does does Infinite just not wrap up? Um, that that book actually for me does resolve, but it resolves sort of outside the right frame of the picture. There, you can get a pretty good idea, I think, of what happens. Um, I yeah, I think for the most part, I, I'm just like all writers. I want to try to do stuff that feels real to me. Um, and so stuff that's been very heavily used um, in commercial entertainments um, uh, that are very neat and slick and sophisticated um, are probably going to are probably going to strike me as not real, and I'm going to um, I'm going to avoid them. And probably in some cases that's a problem because there are certain types of artworks that should wrap up neatly. The visceral knee-jerk, oh, God, if it's, if, it's, if it's ever been done in a commercial thing, I shouldn't do it, is probably something of a limitation. I hope I don't have it all the time. But, it, but I mean, in, 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 in composition, I mean, you're saying, I, you're, you see yourself going in some ways, I've seen that elsewhere, and I've seen that elsewhere. And because, you know, your friend, you were talking about your, your friends who aren't writers, and they come home from work, and they're watching stories. I mean, Stories, which is what people used to read 150 years ago, and now you have stories told to you kind of, well, you sit passively watching them on television. Well, except before that 150 years ago, stories were things we told each other. So Again. there's a neat kind of coming full circle about the whole thing. They weren't originally told to us um, by somebody whose entire, really whose entire agenda was to um, was to acquire our attention um, so that he could deliver messages to us that were for the sake of somebody who was giving him money so there's a bit of an odd spin on it now but um yeah. and, and and also the, the the stories took on this extra life throughout the day in, in other places because the people who appear in these stories are also on billboards talking about something else wholly unrelated to the story in which you, you saw them but i mean w- when you're writing are there moments you say you know I could I could resolve this situation very easily and and but no I'm not going to do it because that's the way they would do it in Hollywood. Here's what's hard about talking about this is that the truth 
at least for me, is not nearly as sophisticated or interesting as the kind of question you just posited. It's usually a tummy thing. Does this feel real? Does this make me want to puke? You know, does this seem fake or contrived or not? And there's not a whole lot of cerebration, at least for me, going on. We're talking with David Foster Wallace, author of Oblivion. Got a question for him? Give a call. 800-423-8255. 800-423-TALK. I'm Michael Goldfarb. This is The Connection from NPR. I'm Michael Goldfarb. This is The Connection. The author, David Foster Wallace, is with me in the studio. Um, 800-423-8255 is the number to call if you want to put a question to David Foster Wallace, 800-423-TALK. We can talk about writing, David, or you can just read some of your writing. That might work also. Okay. Um, Another thing that's been selected is part of a story called Good Old Neon that's basically a story about a lot of different kinds of loneliness. Um, Once again, I'm aware that it's clumsy to put it all this way. But the point is that all of this and more was flashing through my head just in the interval of the small, dramatic pause Dr. Gustafson, uh, who was the guy's shrink, allowed himself before delivering his big reductio ad absurdum argument that I couldn't be a total fraud if I had just come out and admitted my fraudulence to him just now. I know that you know as well as I do how fast thoughts and associations can fly through your head. You can be in the middle of a creative meeting at your job or something, and enough material can rush through your head just in the little silences when people are looking over their notes and waiting for the next presentation that it would take exponentially longer than the whole meeting just to try to put a few seconds silences flood of thoughts into words. This is another paradox, that many of the most important impressions and thoughts in a person's life are ones that flash through your head so fast that fast isn't even the right word. They seem totally different from or outside of the regular sequential clock time we all live by. And they have so little relation to the sort of linear one word after another word English we all communicate with each other with that it could easily take a whole lifetime just to spell out the contents of one split second's flash of thoughts and connections and so on. And yet we all seem to go around trying to use English or whatever language our native country happens to use, it goes without saying, to try to convey to other people what we're thinking and to find out what they're thinking when in fact, deep down, everybody knows it's a charade and they're just going through the motions. What goes on inside is just too fast and huge and all interconnected for words to do more than barely sketch the outlines of at most one tiny little part of it at any given instant. The internal head speed or whatever of these ideas, memories, realizations, emotions, and so on is even faster, by the way, exponentially faster, unimaginably faster when you're dying meaning during that vanishingly tiny nanosecond between when you technically die and when the next thing happens, so that in reality the cliché about people's whole life flashing through their eyes as they're dying isn't all that far off. Although the whole life thing here isn't really a sequential thing where first you're born and then you're in the crib and then you're up at the plate in American Legion baseball, etc., which it turns out that that's what people usually mean when they say, my whole life, meaning a discrete chronological series of moments that they add up and call their lifetime. It's not really like that. That last part was a separate sentence, by the way. And, and uh, that, that's just a, an interesting stylist, technical stylistic point. It's she's, just, she's picked all the really long run-ons. <laughs> just let me read out loud. Yeah, I know, but, but th- this, w- this one is 
particularly good because this is about, it seems to me to be about the process of consciousness before it forms itself into language. Do you think that language is the end point of the process of, of formulating a thought? Oh, there's a whole very heavy debate to get into here. There, there's, there are schools of thought, some of which I find persuasive, um, that, that argue that there really is no meaningful reality outside language, that language creates um, in, a, in a very complicated way what we call reality. That would be, that would be your post-structural. Yes. Um, One of the reasons I didn't complete a PhD in philosophy, I just didn't yeah. want to have that conversation for professional purposes. The stuff, the stuff is incredibly abstract and abstruse, um, partly because it's dealing with the paradox that we're attempting to talk metaphysically about language using nothing but language. Uh, which sets up certain paradoxes that your readers may not find all that interesting, but are really, really kind of tough. <laughs> well, uh, we'll we'll challenge them. Tell us some of the paradoxes that they set up. Well, the, I mean, the basic paradox, which is one that's handled handled sort of more facilely in mathematical logic, is that it's very, very difficult to talk about a language within that language. Um, Kurt Gödel's famous "I am lying" paradox—I'm sorry, that's not even Gödel. That comes out of ancient Greece. Is the is the first um, is sort of the first instance of this fact. This this is making the story that I read from sound very cerebral. This is actually supposed to be kind of the saddest story in the book. But 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 one of the things about the narrator is he's had enough sort of education to kind of drive himself crazy um, with the surface of these certain paradoxes. Um, the philosophy of the whole stuff is very interesting. I don't really keep up that much with okay. it. 800-423-8255, 800-423-TALK. David is on the line from Boston. Yeah. Good morning. Good morning. On the reading and writing uh, scene, I, my high point this past year was uh, Bellow's The uh, Adventures of Augie March. But my question was that earlier in the show, you touched very briefly on the question of truth uh, in the postmodern era. And I think we live in a very, what I would you call it, uh, where truth is sort of like um, up for grabs in our present era. And I just would like you to kind of, if you don't mind, elaborate a little bit more on where you were going with that thought. Okay, David, that's a good question. Oh, that, I think it was you who were talking about the truth thing. Um, were I to weigh in, I guess I would say that, that to an extent I agree with you, and I think this is an interesting legacy of of a kind of postmodern skepticism, the idea that everything is spin, that there is no truth, that you can derive one truth even about the day's events from, say, Fox News, and another from, uh, you know, the great liberal conspiracy of the New York Times and CNN, um, is, I think, both liberating and exciting and also extremely scary. David? Yeah, I, your latter point has me sort of in the same sort of paradoxical, ambivalent situation where I think we have lot of truth meisters and uh, I think it's leading us into a lot of confusion about who is on the right side of certain issues and certain perspectives in our age and uh, it, it has me very scared as well and I'm not sure there's an easily reconcilable way out but uh, I'm, I think that uh, you know the voices we listen to are in such conflict with one another and that the ones that we've listened to in the past that presumably uh, represent authority in such matters are in such diametrical opposition to one another. I'm, I'm very concerned about the way uh, we're headed in, in terms of, okay. um, you know, our modern culture and way of life. All right, David, th thank you for your call. It, 
an astute call, I think. It is, but truth in in term in at the personal level, David Foster Wallace. Um, used to be that artists said, well, I, I want to create the truth out of my experience of life. You operating there, or does that is that a concept that just adds extra weight to the process? Well, that, that that's a bit of a romantic thing. The thing about it is is is, is it is true, I think, because when you're, when you're doing stuff like this, so much of it is sort of tummy truth as opposed to head truth. Does this feel true or not? Um, the interesting thing for me, this is a very romantic capital R idea of truth that as far as I can tell, comes from Nietzsche, that all truth is perspectival, that it seems to me that one of the ingenious things that, that particularly the right in America has been able to do is to inject this kind of skepticism into public debate, where if you or I proffer something that seems absolutely true, that, I don't know, that uh, that justice for the homelessness might be an imperative, for them to say, well, that appears to you to be true only because you've been conditioned, you, that you have been conditioned by... A, a liberal conspiracy within academia and the media in order to think that way. And it is very, um, rhetorically, it is very difficult to come up with an effective, concise rebuttal to that because anything you say can be said to be a further product of the conditioning of your perspective. It is scary, I agree with David, but it's also really exciting because I don't know that there's been a, a rhetoricization of the debate in quite this way in America ever ever before, and I think any time capital A authority is brought into question, it's exciting. Also, really, it seems to me to have a huge capacity for danger. You're listening to The Connection from NPR. 800-423-8255, 800-423-TALK. Jennifer is calling from Durham, North Carolina. Hi, I thought it was important that we complete the triangle from down here. <laughs> Um, I'm so excited to have David Foster Wallace on the program today. I had to call in and participate. I wanted to ask you about your sense of maturing as a writer. You mentioned earlier um, things that you see differently now than you did when you were in school. And I um, recently went back and reread a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again, which is a story I loved. And I still loved it. But, but having being about um, not in my mid-30s but now closer to 40, my experience of it was um, – a little bit more that not exactly that it was sarcastic but that it was funny at the expense in some places of people or things and i'm wondering if you think there is a trajectory from something like sarcasm for a writer to something more generous and if so if if you if that if there's an edge that gets lost does that happen yeah that 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 is an uncomfortably good question um you're referring to a, a long essay i did about a cruise ship um that that was it was funny and i rather liked it when i first did it and now about 10 years later particularly with respect to certain people i met on the cruise when i read sections of it i wince because it seems cruel um and and how to reconcile i know i don't do as much nonfiction as i used to as a writer and i think part of it is that i kind of don't have the heart or stomach to say even truthful things that might hurt somebody's feelings i doubt that is artistically all that promising although it might make me a kind of maybe a slightly better human being. I think the standard, I'm going through the standard arc that just about everybody goes through is that my interest in intellectual and cerebral and clever stuff, although it's it's not like I'm not interested in that, but I was very, very interested in that when I was a really young writer. And, and the older I get, the more what's magical about art um, becomes for me the idea of stuff that's moving. Uh, and I don't necessarily just mean sad, but I mean has a very complicated 
emotional resonance as opposed to an intellectual or kind of meta-artistic resonance? Ooh, which sounds like a very egg-headed answer. Yeah. Um, actually, I thought your question was, was dead on. Jennifer? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, uh, your response is pretty much what I would have expected, and, and I, it actually excites me about reading your new work. I mean, I think for, especially if we age with the writers that we like, then I will be in the same place that you are now, and I was in the same place you were when I first read, uh, you know, something that was perhaps more biting. Imagine and it I, from the writer's point of view, though. The writer's point of view is I'm pretty good at being a smart ASS. Um, but what if, you know, what if this new, this new stuff that uh, that affects me a lot more, what if I can't do that as well? I mean, it's, uh, it, and it's probably the same conflict I'll have in my 50s or my 60s. It, it ends up being kind of scary. Well, it's, it's what all artists have to face as they grow. Well, you're, you're, you're a smart person. <laughs> Je Jennifer, are you a reader or a writer? Or both? Uh, a reader. You're a good reader. Thank you. I'm looking forward to this new collection. Thanks very much, Jennifer. We're coming, approaching the end of the hour. And, and David, you're teaching now. Earlier we were talking about your experience as a student. Do you think the, the, the people that you're teaching are different than you were when you were in your early 20s and, and taking a degree in, in writing? Uh, well, I'm teaching, I, I teach undergrads, and yeah, although I also, I, it, I don't have children, but but I'm going through my version of the the older you get, the smarter your parents get thing, because I hear leaving my mouth certain things um, that that professor said to me and that I thought was just was just a sign that they didn't recognize, you know, my genius and that and that I could transcend all of that stuff. So it sounds like a cliche, but the fact of the matter is, is the good thing about teaching is that you learn more than anybody else in the classroom. Do you think that um, we, had, we had Evan Wright on the other day, Generation Kill, and he was talking about he thought there was a fundamental difference between the Marines that were fighting in Iraq, say, and the guys that the Marines that would have fought in Vietnam, and it had to do with the way the kids here, he was observing, had been involved in video games and all the media stuff that we talked about earlier. Do you get that talking to the young writers, that whereas you were, were just fighting to have pop references respected in a high cultural sense, do they think it's a fight worth fighting, or are they just used to that's the way it is? Yeah, I don't know that... Um, I mean, this is still a big split in fiction, and there's a lot of really good um, vibrant capital R realistic fiction that doesn't engage very much with with features of the culture that you also couldn't have found 100 and 150 years ago. I, what I notice more with my students, um, sort of the way Evan notices video games as operant conditioning, I think helping people be better killers, is that their 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 attention spans are shorter but also more agile. There are, there are more flash cuts in their stuff. The differences to me seem seem really to be far more technical than spiritual. David Foster Wallace, thank you very, very much. This was a supposedly fun thing, right? He was, suffer already. He was suffering. He was suffering, <laughs> listeners. I hope you'll do it again. David Foster Wallace's new book of short stories is titled Oblivion. Quickly, The Connection is produced by Jennifer Ehrlich, Catherine Penalosa, Sarah Field, Kelly Jones, Jen Matson, Virginia Prescott, Christina Russo, and Doug Schugertz. Tara Murphy is the woman who's whispering in my ear throughout this program. She's our senior producer. I'm Michael Goldfarb. This is The Connection. <laughs>